Cool. Um, yeah, I, I was saying that, you know, I haven't really slept that well uh, recent nights and it's because of a thing that's happening in the world that I think is capturing the attention of all countries and everyone. And uh, yeah, I, I'm a bit tired today and I guess all of you have watched the election or what do you say, Lars? Yeah, I was up really late on the on the election night uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it affects us so much, everyone. Mm. So mm. it's it's interesting to see. I guess you as well, Henrik. Or? Both yes and no. So uh, I had so much going on, and we we were sort of putting it on and then off, and then we got up really early and watched it in in the morning. Mm. So I, I would say I, we kind of watched it till like twelve or one, but not the whole night sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. I try to stay away as much as I can, but it's. Really hard, given the media attention that we have right right now. Yeah, but but yeah. but, but it's interesting now. Of, of course, being interested in data and, and analytics, uh, how, how have you th- do you think they've been doing a good visualization? Uh, is is oh, it easy to follow? Is it good? Can we do? Could they do it better? I, stum- I stumbled on the New York Times uh, page, and they were doing some really impressive like visualization, helping you to understand and so forth. And, uh, but they stand out. And uh, what did they do? Um, you could, uh, you could interactively go and explore the, the swing states and the different counties and so forth with detailed statistics on how each county was uh, doing in, in the voting and in the counting and uh, in comparison with the previous elections and so forth. And uh, the, I think, they stand out and it, you can see, clearly see that they have become like a data mature company and have got a grip on, on how, the data. To, pr- on how, how to, to work on data, the data so forth. If, if you look at technical conferences, they are frequently there presenting what yeah. they're doing, how they're yeah. working. It's really great so to forth. see actually a media company that actually knows how to work with data properly, which yeah. is rather yeah. scarce. But, but you commented before on this, why don't we see trends? So, yeah, I mean, I'm a data nerd, so I just get annoyed by, you know, why don't they have this obvious kind of visualization they should have, you know, to, to really, you know, tell what's happening. The trend. Uh, but I'm, I'm damaged from work, I think, <laughs> for doing that. But yeah. one other thing that I really get annoyed with is how poorly the opinion polls are, you know, measuring up. They are ju- just like the previous election, uh, exactly. um, but we have to remember that this is a very difficult thing to like predict and project uh, because you d- you don't have any any reliable measurements anymore. I mean, in the past when we were responding to these CFO things, they would call everyone and then you get an unbiased view of the, of the society. Now we don't have fixed phones; we can't reach everyone, so mm-hmm. every measurement we do is like naturally biased. Mm. And then the rules are different in different countries and people are online in different patterns mm. and, uh, and so forth. And, all, and it, it not only differs between countries, but also between the states in the US. Mm. So the, the sort of the underlying election algorithms uh, mm. are different. So it's mm. a really difficult challenge to do properly. Yes. So, but I, yeah. before we leave it, yeah. one I actually did a Google search today mm. in the morning. Now you know when they, it's still not it's still not decided. Blah blah blah. And I typed in AI plus uh, U.S. election, and one of the top hits I get, or the, one of the topics you get around this, is is several articles around a a quite uh, elaborate Twitter initiative, Twitter analytics initiative uh, that has been done previous to to uh, the election 
we're basically using tweets uh, as a way to, and, and scraping that as a way to understand sentiment and from sentiment understanding where will this go and so and the interesting point is is uh, this model actually predicted a very close race. So, uh, so, uh, and and but they were they were doing it nicely th that they weren't saying that they had the perfect model. They were very humble, but they were much closer to the reality when where the polls were talking about the landslide for Biden. Maybe maybe that's because they measure how the Russian bots will vote. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually. But what it's interesting, works. yeah, because in the article it also highlights the tricky point of doing a, 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 a model on tweets because, of course, the whole model is from the beginning biased. Ultimately, who is on Twitter? And it's a clear difference, but they they kind of took that into account and they t they compared it and um, pumped the model up with data from last uh, year. I'm Interesting, a, I think. Speaking about using Twitter for trying to understand some kind of sentiment, sentiment. in the society, it moves to, to Corona as well. And yeah. um, we actually in Peltaren also did a, a Twitter sentiment analysis or toxicity analysis of Corona and, and actually fed that to Riksbanken and have some kind of live understanding of what's happening. And that, this is actually, a, I think, an expert uh, topic for you as well, uh, Lars. Uh, but I know did some um, investigation into trying to understand, you know, how to use data quality or data for Corona. What was that about? Can you... Well, well it I wanted to do something, right? Yeah. Everybody wanted it uh, back, to back in February. Ex exactly. How can I help? And, um, you know, I, I, I've taken on as a, as a life mission to go out and help companies, organizations get the, the superpowers of, of data. And um, that's, that has turned out to be really difficult for, for companies to get mature in that sense. And mm. usually I just shrug my shoulder and go to the next company. But, but in terms of, of Swedish health authorities, there isn't... There is no startup that we can hope to come and, and disrupt them, right? Mm. They, they're just the one and only. Um, and we, we actually did a little effort trying to help with projections and so forth. Uh, there was uh, us and then a uh, small data science startup called Model AI. Um, so we, we had a model with uh, where you could predict how Corona spread based on uh, anonymous mobile data and so forth mm. and try to get the chain and you know data from the mobile actors to onto the uh, and to the, out to the regions to plan for for the outbreaks and so forth uh, and we got a lot interest from several regions but we weren't able to pull the whole chain uh, together unfortunately mm. um, and um, so I thought well, like what else can we do so it, it, my contribution in the end became this uh, presentation where I use COVID-19 and the response as a, and highlight how much they value from data that we're like leaving on the table by not handling it uh, properly and how much more we could do. After that presentation, there was this incident in the UK where they were missing, you know, tens of thousands of tests because they mishandled some data in Excel. <laughs> But I, but I think, what, yeah. could you give us a snapshot? Because you actually did a very applauded presentation at Data Innovation Summit this year. And it was quite interesting how you, with quite simple techniques, could basically dissect uh, the data set and how they have used it and if there was any real, what, what was the data robustness, so to speak. So please, could you, that, that, that was very interesting. So for the ones who didn't hear that one, could you give us the... 
So a, a sort of a couple of highlights. I, I tried to show how the some common mistakes that you make when handling data and, and, and uh, mishandle the data quality and how that leads to wrong conclusions. Um, so the, uh, w one of the focuses of, of the presentation uh, was uh, if you mishandle like code quality and, and omit the software engineering piece, you end up doing what the Imperial College in London did. Uh, where they actually published a source code, which was great until I looked at it and I became terrified. Right? Mm -hmm. th th that source code that would never pass an undergraduate course uh, in, in university. Uh, and I looked at the code and I said, the, it, there is no chance that this code could produce the right results. That the outcome of that code was used... Has affected lots of government policies. And, and all, give some technical over. details. You know, we yeah, have now let's details. go nerdy on this one. Let's <laughs> what, really what kind go of code nerdy. was Don't it? What language was it? What they what were they trying trying to do? Actually, it this was, is super interesting. In in theory, it was C plus plus. I mean, syntax wise, it was C plus plus, but it yeah. doesn't look like C plus plus. You know, there were functions that were eight hundred lines long, and they didn't know fit <laughs> on the screen. And and you know, you could uh, lots of tests, of course, full test coverage. Uh, uh, well, there was actually. Uh, one or two tests, and really? they uh, yes, that was surprising. But they tested that the they were pure regression tests. So they tested that the code produced the same incorrect result as the last time, <laughs> <laughs> and, but but they actually didn't work. So they had to disable them because the code was completely indeterministic. So if you changed the number of yeah. threads, for example, you the the outcome result differed by twenty percent. So so just the number of threads changed the actual data. If you just change purely technical parameters. And I didn't do these tests, but but there's a there's a great code review out there mm -hmm. by an ex-Google engineer mm -hmm. uh, linking to some experiments that have been done on the code. Uh, and you know so, and the the response when they were criticized here was staggering as well because uh, there were there were like GitHub issues and someone said that uh, there's this constant number of days in a year, and it's 364. Surely that's not correct, right? <laughs> <laughs> For the this was actually leap year, so this should be 366. Mm. Uh, but and the response was no, no, no. You, you know, in C plus plus you count from zero, so so that's right. And then I looked at the code, and it was no, that, <laughs> that does not correct, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, it had all these blatant problems all over the place, and um, it, they. There were Swedish researchers that ran this code uh, on Sweden because Sweden didn't do the lockdown that, mm. that you know, the, the Imperial College were, were advocating for and so forth. And after the fact, the, uh, the outcomes uh, from, in comparison to the model were off by a factor of 20. Right. So, so, so that's outcome how in terms of the, the real spread, the, or what's the, the, the what's the outcome in this case? Uh, the the number of of uh, deceased uh, in, in Sweden. Oh, so they fatalities. They, exactly. So they had predicted about a hundred thousand fatalities in Sweden by now, given the measures that were taken so in it, Sweden. It was off by a factor of twenty or something. A factor of twenty, yes. And they uh, mm. they concluded in Britain that. Um, well, it's great, you know, the the authorities listened to us and then so we saved hundreds of thousands of lives. So they were <laughs> celebrating their own incompetence. In, in, <laughs> but, it, but it's so many disturbing uh, points here, but let's break it down. I mean, like, so so one of the key things here is a little bit like, let, let's talk about a profession now. Who, who do you think made that code? What what profile of it? It's clearly not the data engineer, yeah. but rather a data scientist. So uh, I mean, that? <laughs> no, that was a cheap shot. I'll, I'll pass on that one. <laughs> we have, by the way, one data scientist and one data engineer. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. help it. I couldn't help uh, it. We're sitting on different sides of the table. We can throw crisps at each other. 
Uh, no, they were domain domain experts, right? Uh, okay, domain experts, right? They are epidemiologists, so, and and clearly they they had no software engineering ex- expertise in in the room, uh, and it's fine. People don't have to be software engineers, but then you take some help, yes. right? Yeah. It's 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 obvious. It's like. Uh, you know, uh, driving a fleet of ambulances and never taking them to the car mechanic, right? It, it's obvious that, that things will go bad, and they did. You can but do some things as a domain expert, but some things you, you need help with. Yeah, um, and, and, and if and it's a car, you know, you can drive it, but perhaps you can't fix it. But this is mo- of problems, one of the most right? concrete, very big blow-ups that highlights the need for cross-disciplinary ways of working when you do data ops and data science and all this. Don't try this as home folk on your own. That's my bottom line. I just want to nail that down. That is, exactly. that here, and, and, and here we have the other disturbing fact then. What happens now, we, we become data-driven and we start acting upon it and it's wrong. That's quite disturbing as well. The, and, and that's kind of an example of, of the opposite arrogance, right? Yes. That, that where, when, when data engineers and data and scientists sit on one side and say, we have mastered deep learning, we can tackle any domain, mm-hmm. and how hard can it be? Right? Yeah. And, uh, and we have thousands of failed startups on, on, on like that assumption. Uh, so I'm utterly convinced that we work best when we combine the technical capabilities with with the domain experts and, and try to be humble and, yeah, and learn and, from and each other and work together. And, and then going all the way back to this uh, AI after work podcast, we need to have the different perspectives working together. And here we need to get the same lingo. We need to understand each other. And we need to start understanding that this is a cross-disciplinary approach. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a classical thing we have spoken of a number of times, like the catch-22 of yes. you have people knowing the domain and are experts in that, and they don't know the computer science and data science behind it, but they know the domain. And then you have data scientists or data engineers that know data and computer science really well, but don't know the domain. And if they don't collaborate, you know, it will not work well. And you wish you could have both, or better tooling or something to enable, you know, if you can enable date, uh, domain experts to really, you know, use data and AI properly, then we would have a really nice situation. But we, we're not really there yet. Or. No, that, that's a long journey. I, I think the simple answer is just like working together. Mm. Uh, and going back to COVID uh, and, and that presentation, the uh, one of the other topics was, uh, I looked at mm. what the Swedish authorities are presenting, right? Mm. And uh, they are not... They don't have, uh, I know that not everybody likes them, and I'm not uh, saying whether they're doing the right and wrong things here, uh, but they don't have the same arrogance with respect to to people pointing Mm -hmm. out their mistakes. Um, So, uh, but I I follow these presentations that they hold, used to hold them every day, now twice a week. Mm -hmm. And uh, every day, you see them show these curves and, and they say, oh, here's the, you know, here's the last week. And by the way, the last bar is only three days, so you can't compare that bar with the other <laughs> bars. <laughs> That's not rocket science right? in, in analytics. Every time they have to, they have to explain the, the, the fallacies of, of, or, or the imperfectness of, of their own displays. Mm. And in, Earlier, they used to show uh, the number of deceased or, or the number of intensive care, and, and it was all, always dropping at the end. It's like, why is that graph always dropping? Well, it's, it's because of slow data collection. It takes a, a couple of weeks for, for the reports of deceased people to, to come in, and 
that's fair, right? But then you shouldn't show a graph of all the data that you have where each bar is not comparable to the other bars. You could every please take out the non-comparable bars. Exactly. <laughs> or I mean, there are lots of things you can do. And in the presentation, I go through a bunch of things. I go through how to make the data how to comparable compare comparable data, mm. or how to make projections. And 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 this is a good highlight of the the uh, data mature companies versus the non-data mature companies because the the, the non-data mature companies they are still doing these things with with like craftsman's tools like like so. uh, hammers and, and screw and manual screwdrivers right and they might be really good at this uh, but in a world where the where the leading companies have industrial processes in place right the they they are out competed now. If it wasn't authorities, they would go out of business. But now they are authorities, so they're the only ones that we have. So we, are, we, we 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 let's explore this further down the track. But we now have almost like a custom workshop, uh, you know, uh, like like I'm building cars in a custom garage. Exactly. Versus this is Stuttgart, right? And we have the BMW's full production line. And and that is a good analogy because the the. The companies that are best at do, doing what we call data ops and, and, and uh, after that machine learning ops and so forth, that is very sim that is very influenced by the lean principles of Toyota, right? C cutting waste, uh, discovering problems early, uh, to minimizing the lead time uh, and so forth. And that, I remember when reading the, this uh, Toyota the uh, Toyota Waybook. Uh, that is the the book that has mostly affected uh, my career so far. It, so I think this is an awesome topic of discussion. But let's before do the we segue. What started his career? Let's let's, let's jump yes, on the segue. Exactly. You know, and then start now. What <coughs> career? Who <laughs> is career? What career? Yeah. Who, 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 who is Lars Albertson? Who is Lars Albertson? Yes. So um, my first career steps. Um, was uh, during university, I uh, worked a bit I, at IBM with OS2 systems. Not a lot of people oh. have worked with those. Oh. And did, uh, at the time, I thought that, oh, IBM had this cool level of automation. But it, it, I have afterwards realized that's where I first encountered the, the going from craft to factory. Mm. Because back then, I had a Windows 311 machine at home, like a Pentium 120. And uh, it was it, it was really a pet, right? You, you massaged it, and if it had a virus, that, that would be terrible, and you had to work so much just to keep it alive, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And you could see that out uh, out in the professional world. That you had to spend lots of time just keeping the Windows machines alive. That was your pet by then. I like that comparison. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when we uh, when I worked at IBM. Um, the, we didn't treat these OS2 machines as pets because whenever something was wrong with them, we just went with floppy, we booted them, and they would contact this installation server and they, they would be rebuilt from scratch from, from the definitions in the floppy and they would probe the hardware and install the right drivers and reboot 11 times and so forth. Some people got confused and, and said, who deleted my, you know, my local files that I put on this machine because that's what we used to. But... In essentially, uh, with, with that OS2 installation, you had gone from a craftsman, uh, working with craftsman's tools and, and shaping the, your 
car in your garage to a factory mm-hmm. where you build things from scratch. Now, this is the same way that we build containers today. And this is the same way that we build data sets in a, in a modern data environment. So that this was, was your first, first, first encounter with factory thinking. We, exactly. With factory thinking. It, it was... We we could administrate like many dozens of, of those machines with very very little effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so so from there, uh, at the end of my studies, I did my master thesis in in the uh, Center for Parallel Computing in Stockholm. So it was a traditional sort of high performance computing environment, uh, working with uh, data visualization and parallel computation. Uh, I moved on to six Swedish Institute of Computer Science, stayed there for uh, like ten years. Uh, doing research in, in uh, mostly in distributed systems and to some degree in networking. I ran one of the first IP version 6 nodes in Sweden, or the first IP version 6 node in, in Sweden back then. Cool. Um, yeah, and that... Uh, when I re- is this? Uh, this is, I started there 97. Mm-hmm. I shut down the node in 2006. This was the six-bone experimental network, and it, it was killed on Ju- on June sixth, two thousand six. To remember it, exactly. Um, and uh, then I felt that I uh, the six of the six. Yeah, may- maybe I was done with with academia. Uh, I I got to the stage of almost having a dissertation, uh, but I realized, in a sense, what I had done could not be used because it was tried tied to proprietary hardware or proprietary software, and it. Uh, it wasn't as uh, valuable as I thought. Uh, <laughs> so I, I ran out of steam before I did my PhD. And uh, when I thought it was time to uh, change tracks, a uh, Google recruiter called. So before that, but you're, you started some PhD work, right? Yes. Uh, and what was the topic of that? So the, the topic was uh, to use virtualization, which was, this was before like VMware mm. and, uh, and uh, so forth. But you use that type of instruction level virtualization for the purpose of uh, debugging and testing and analyzing distributed and multi-threaded systems. So uh, I, I built uh, on top of, of a simulator, uh, which was the name for the virtualization at, at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I built like uh, debuggers so you could go probe into the virtual machines uh, and and look at their state uh, in the same way as you would debug normal programs. So you can say you, you started working with a with a precursor to Docker's before, uh, and you started to work with a precursor to the virtual machines we all use today in cloud computing? In a sense, the, the purpose of these machines were, were not to run things in production, but to study. Ah, the, okay. like, uh, they were uh, uh, at first used for uh, evaluating hardware, like uh, simulating cache hierarchies and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a, a, like a sabbatical at Sun Microsystems building mm-hmm. hardware, mm-hmm. and we used these simulators to, uh, to validate that the systems worked as expected. Mm. Uh, and sort of to like run simulation environment in some way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the there were um, there were a couple of these nowadays. The the pop, only popular open source one is called QMU, uh, but that wasn't really around at the time. Uh, this was a, a Swedish thing called Semix. They na- they eventually got bought by Intel. Uh, there was a competing one from Stanford called SimOS, and that one never got. Uh, commercialized, I think, but the research group that did that eventually moved on to do a research called Disco, and that became VM- VMware. Oh, uh, And at the time, we were also collaborating with a, a group in 
Cambridge run, uh, and they moved on to uh, to do Zen, which was is one of the uh, cool. popular virtualizations today. I think it drives AWS, if I'm not correct. Oh, really? Mistaken. <laughs> but Google Recruiter, that sounds interesting. So what happened then? Yes, and this was, uh, I mean, this was 2007. It's now mm-hmm. a long time ago. And that was at uh, sort of the height of the Google hype. Uh, so so that was interesting. And they were looking for SREs at the time. And that was a- SREs? Yeah, uh, software reliability engineers. Uh, that SRE, the SRE concept is, uh, you could call it Google's implementation of the DevOps philosophy. But both the DevOps and SREs were completely unknown concepts at the time. And uh, you have to have a certain, in order to work as an SRE, you have to have m- tick off many boxes I- in your resume, like, like uh, coding and testing and operating systems and networking and uh, yada, yada. And I happened to tick up, tick all of them. So I, I showed up in there. Uh, recruitment scans. So th- th- then when they did the sort or the search, you had one of the resumes that fitted that. Exactly. They fitted all of the checkboxes, right? So, so I, you know, Google called me and I could go fly to Zurich and, and uh, have, have some interviews with them. That's great. Nothing to lose, right? Uh, so I went there and I flunked the interview uh, <laughs> for, the, for the SRE. That turned out to be more of a sys, more sysadmin than I thought. Uh, so but the, then they called back and they said, well, it seems that you fit be- better for this role called software engineering test, which is uh, like test interested software engineering, basically. Uh, I didn't flunk that interview uh, and I got a job offer down in Zurich. Um, and, uh, I looked at the numbers and I was, this was, you know, before climate, uh, the, the climate disasters. Uh, so I considered flying there every weekend, but it would, the numbers didn't add up. It would be too, too expensive. I realized. So I declined. And, uh, then they called me three days later and said, Hey, we now bought this company in Sweden. Like, do you want to work in Sweden? Okay, where are they based? They're based in Luleå. I'm not. I'm not going to Luleå. Sorry. I mean, Luleå is a nice place, but no, you know, I live my whole life in Stockholm. I'm staying here. Uh, no, no, no. They have a couple of people in Stockholm. Um, and uh, okay, what are they doing? They're doing video conferencing. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the company is called Maratech. And um, and I said, okay, yes, whatever. I. I had done some networking, so I had useful uh, skills, but I don't know anything about video conferencing, uh, and I don't know if I think it's fun, but never mind. And my wife said, you know, you don't know so much about these companies, people, what they're doing. Uh, are you sure this is going to be a good idea? And and I said, it's Google. It's th- exactly. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, Google. Uh, I want you, Google on my resume. <laughs> give it the time. If uh, as soon as I get Google on my resume, I can I can go whatever thereafter. And that turned out to be true because we have in Sweden people have a very high respect for these strong brands. Yeah. Uh, and I can't now, understand you nowadays. It's not so hyped, but, but back then it was is really really hyped. It, it was almost ridiculous you know when we went to parties i didn't tell people where i was working really explicitly asked it was so hard right (laughs) yeah it it was ridiculous and and um so i ended up working with the video conferencing and uh, the the uh, the product they had there was it was more of an acquire than 
anything else so that that eventually got uh, sunsetted but we built the first uh, version of talk video it was called at the time that eventually became hangouts and now there's the th- sort of third so this is the, fir- the, the first generation of google hangouts yeah exactly uh, and i have never been passionate about video conferencing but uh, but that's fine because i ended up in the engineering productivity organization and it turns out that Google's engineering productivity surpassed anything that I have ever so seen before or after. So it was really educational. So, so it's a little bit, this is the best school of life. That was a very, very good school. Yes. Um, and so this is interesting. I mean, like even I mean, like, let's, let's do the whole resume, but it would be interesting to take it as a separate segment to talk about what was the real standout topics here. But I think we should go to the resume. Yeah, but, but just very quickly, at least, what does an engineering productivity department do or what's the, the what, what, their goals to tooling and and processes for ensuring that the people are productive it changed name actually from from test engineering because most of the activities were around uh like automated testing and and automation of, of quality assurance and so forth and that is no little thing at google because every line that you check in is tested not against your pro uh, product only, but against everybody else that is dependent on it. Mm. So this is tr- this is true data product thinking, uh, Some, or something like this that it really needs to run or be uh, reusable. Uh, That's what I'm trying. Yeah, to Yeah, exactly. And and the I mean, the, the Google is very very coordinated. At least it was at the time. Uh, you know, it, it, I haven't been at there in a very long time, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, I don't know how it has progressed. But it, it, the the philosophy was that you move fast because you have the machinery, the coordination to, 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 and. So, uh, so we're, we're truly well. talking so about a f- industrialized factory thinking at the core. Ab- absolutely. Yes. And, and, uh, minimize the, uh, latency from your idea to putting it in code, to getting it in production. They didn't do like, uh, pure continuous delivery and continuous deployment at the time. I don't know if they do nowadays, but there were, there were release cadences and so forth. Uh, I think that to some degree for economical reasons, the number of tests that you have to run in order to, to throw out an elite, a release, you know, with, with all of the performance regression tests, that amounts to a significant amount of money. Uh, so in smaller cases, you, in smaller settings, uh, continuous delivery, you, is, you is can do continuous deployment. Yeah, exactly. You can but, continuous but, deployment. but, but this is a different scale. Uh, yeah. And the economics are, are somewhat, uh, different. And there was also a culture shift. Um, uh, and that was, that is really interesting because, um, when I joined the, the, the company was in this transition from relying heavily on manual testing, in particular for the mobile products. I mean, this remember, this was before the iPhone. Uh, so, and, but also uh, with the web products uh, and uh, Selenium and think technology like this was fairly new. Um, so, uh, and there was still a lot of manual testing and the, it was decided from above that this doesn't work out. It's just too costly. Uh, so they, uh, they said, uh, in typical Google way, figure this out, engineers, go figure this out. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and yeah. yes. <laughs> I mean, testing is certainly a topic that's interesting. And I know, you know, you were at Spotify and we had a lot of discussions there as well about, you know, what the. So, so but, 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 but let's yeah. finish the the journey of Lala. I think this is an extremely interesting journey, and I already have three or four themes 
that I'm biting my tongue not to jump into. That's fine. That's so, fine. but but so from Spotify, you know, uh, from Google, Fr- from Google, and then from then Google, I, I left uh, when I f- felt that I couldn't learn so much anymore, and there was no other project available in Sweden for me to work on. So uh, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I so the on. next step in Google would have been. Zurich, go ahead. Uh, uh, moving was not an option. I no. just had my first child and, and so forth. Yeah. And no, mm-hmm. not an option. Uh, so I, I joined a, a, a startup in a fairly early phase. Uh, it's called Recorded Future. They're now fairly big. Mm-hmm. Um, based in, in Gothenburg. So I was one of a few people uh, based in Stockholm. Uh, that was interesting, uh, educational. Uh, not my cup of tea in the, in the long run. Uh, I moved on. Uh, after a while, I was a bit tired of uh, chaos and and uh, n- sort of the l- sometimes the lack of, of like craftsmanship in, in software. So I decided to go to fintech to see if the amount of money uh, in in an, in the area would actually make people care about quality. Uh, it did in the sense that the, the customers were paying a lot of money. So when we did bad releases, they were very angry and they came flying over. Uh, on the other hand, the uh, fintech overall is quite far behind in terms of methodology and processes and so forth. So it's kind of all evened out. Uh, I moved on from there to Spotify when I realized they were doing interesting things with data. Uh, how and what, did you get picked up by Spotify or did you pick them up? Uh, how, how did that work? I'm I, just curious. Uh, I said yes when the 10th recruiter called. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they actually called me twice after I had started working there as well. Um, somebody suggested I should, I should ask what kind of salary I could get. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, and the, the reason that took me to Spotify re- was really the data. Because one of the realizations working from Google was... Uh, how much value you can get out of data. You know, back in 2007, they were the only ones that do, did yeah, what we call really big understood. data today. Uh, and and it was so evident that, yes, you could, you could like dominate the fields that you're in ba- just based on what you can do. And could you feel data. that with Spotify? Was it, what, what made you feel that Spotify was on that idea? So uh, I went to... Like I think Meetup had, had started in, in town at the time, and Spotify was holding uh, like Hadoop meetups and uh, and uh, Cassandra uh, courses and so forth. So w- once they started saying Hadoop, I realized they were doing interesting things with data. So I wanted to uh, to go there, and I ended up in a uh, team that called called Analytics Computation. So there were just a few teams doing data at Spotify at the time. There was uh, like a data collection team and the co- uh, computation team and some recommendation teams over in in uh, n- uh, New York. And then there were some... Uh, what like year is this? Analytics. analytics. This is uh, 2013. Uh, so... Um, and when were you there? I think it's about the same year at the start, actually. Yeah, I think so. Or with, uh, Quite about, the same, it's about the same year, same age. And the, but the Hadoop cluster was—I'm uh, mm-hmm. not sure mature is the right word—but uh, aging at the time. The, it was installed uh, by, way back in 2007, so it had grown quite a bit. It was uh, no tens of petabytes or something. We're talking Spotify was on the Hadoop train 2007. Yes, and, wow. and that was a, a stroke of luck. I think that was just you know out of pure curiosity. This seems like to be like a fun idea. But the, 
that cluster is the I think the the most valuable computer system that I have ever seen. Mm. Uh, it has wow. generated Why? so much uh, data value. Uh, for, yeah, I think for it started in 2007 in a closet at Jun's department or something. Yeah, Jun. Uh, well, 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 now, now you're uh, being uh, yeah, <laughs> a person at the price. Yeah. was there from the beginning. In the closet, I love it. And it, when the sun actually hit the, the, the cluster, it actually overheated. So then <laughs> it went down and they had to... Wow, uh, this is yeah. Spotify war stories. I love <laughs> it. Exactly. I, I have a, a collection of those uh, war stories, but mm-hmm. at larger scale. But we need to talk, let, let's not do it now, but we need to talk about moving to cloud uh, at uh, yeah, some that, point. That's, that's an interesting story. That's also interesting. I, I think that the, the Spotify's journey with Hadoop, I, I now I'm going way on a tangent instead of my resume here <laughs> as well, but, but it was really a stroke of luck because uh, early adopters of Hadoop have done really, really well with data. And uh, I think there are two factors here. One, they, they are very technical companies and, and uh, amenable to, to like adapt to things and so forth. But it turns out that Hadoop at the time could do very, very few things. It could store f- files. You could do batch computation with MapReduce and you, you have this NoSQL database. And... When you only have those things to work with and you are kind of forced to because you're at the data scale where so that you're forced to use Hadoop, what happens is that you are forced away from the... from the Siloed. Yeah, from the silos of the databases uh, because the Hadoop cluster is really expensive to maintain. You need a couple of people full-time, so you only want one of them. Which means that you share all the data, and you're because forced to transparency, you're forced to transparency. So, and mm. because the security model is so bad, it's like readable to everyone as as well. Uh, whereas, if you were in a, an Oracle database, you have very good security models, so you can lock down the data and you can keep your keep your silos, right? So, uh, you you achieve data democracy because it becomes transparent, and also because of the o- li- limited ways of computation that you have. You are forced to make your uh, to adopt a functional processing mode. You cannot no longer work in databases with mutable data where you can change a record at the time. You're forced to adapt it, like the functional paradigm because the data is in the files is immutable. So you have to build these transformations step by step that, that we now call pipelines. So basically, in a way, what is the shortcomings of Hadoop at this point in time in order to cater for the big data? Uh, value is fostering a data-driven company which is at the essence all about data transparency and it fosters a a coding paradigm which is the functional yeah uh, and and the uh, functional architecture the functional architecture that you do this processing in jobs that process files and so forth and because they're all immutable everybody can share them you can't share a database because you don't know how the others will change the data, but the immutable stuff is easy to share. So, so in a way, growing up in this context actually already here puts you on a different path, how you understand data, data products, what, what the data mesh could be, all this. And, and Google and this was like my introduction to data. So I've never been good at databases. I still can't uh, uh, type SQL, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm crap at it. Um, That's not really true. But okay. that is, you've never seen me. <laughs> I can do a few four lines and then I'm lost. Uh, and 
So, so it, by stroke of luck, you were forced into building a factory instead, yes. instead of using having your database as a pet, right? So and this is in, this is really interesting because it really means that people growing up in the traditional relational database, growing up with those habits and what is best practice in the relational database they actually have a really hard time moving on to the factory thinking now. And this is one of the, maybe one of the key ch challenges why the enterprise has a hard time to truly become data-driven. Exactly, because they have well-established practices that they don't easily change, right? At, at high but, tech the, but for this, the wrong practices, maybe. Exactly. Uh, good for relational, but not so good for factory. And if the late adopters of Hadoop they, that have lots of money. They have gone to the Hadoop vendors and say, well, we understand this Hadoop thing is great, or nowadays these cloud things are great, but we kind of like to keep our workflows and the way we work. Could you please implement SQL and transactions and so forth? And, and then they are eroding the whole value, which is to force you into better ways of working and better ways of collaborating. And that's the real value of big data. I, mean, I think this is an interesting topic about, you know, in general, about parallel content computation in different ways and it can be a big data setting it can be in hpc as you have worked in as well or it can be in ai which i would argue is all three different ways but all have something to do with parallel computation but if yeah before we move into that <laughs> i see you being a bit uh, <laughs> okay. but yeah that's an awesome topic of discussion i, I will continue but, to throw fire on this uh, yeah uh, but before we, we derail his attempts to control the flow here <laughs> But let's try to, to finish up a bit about the, the personal background as well. So, so you worked at Spotify for a number of years, yep. right? Um, and uh, one of the core things we did there was the, like the, when I, when I came there, uh, the, uh, it was, uh, you needed a lot of folklore knowledge mm. to, uh, to put pipelines in production and so forth. So one of the first things we did was to do what is today called data ops, like we, went to a workflow with, with continuous integration, continuous deployment, and so forth, and like enable the whole organization to, to build pipelines rather than just a few teams. And, and that then data use like skyrocketed after that in, in the following, in the following so years. So was that, was that like a deliberate strategy that you understood, or was that just something that evolved of, out of... It was a fairly... How did you get, how did you, because in this way, I mean, like I've seen you talk about data ops and then someone said IBM did it and I actually, I retweeted something oh, in, in LinkedIn like, hey man, this is way, you know, I've heard this from Lala many years <laughs> earlier, guys, come on. So how, yeah. did you, how did you get up to this? Well, the, the, the concept didn't exist. I think the term was invented in 2014 and this that's, was 2013, uh, but, that, but that's... That is, is what best describes what we did. Uh, the uh, it was a fairly low level dis decision, if I remember correctly, and we were just being swamped with requests from from uh, other teams to do things for them. Uh, and and it's a it's a natural progress for an organization to have these expert uh, consultant data teams in the beginning, but then sort of try to democratize later. Uh, so we felt that well, we just enable everybody else instead. So it becomes a data ourselves. serve model. Is that a way of putting it? Yeah, uh, not data serve, but, but the uh, sort of self-service for uh, development teams to, to, to build pipelines and to, to do so without coordinating uh, with, the, with the central team, sort of central data teams. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was an 
evolution of the of the data platform. A survival, as yeah. it sounds at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. You, we will be swamped. Anyway, I, I should go further yes, because sorry. because uh, I just want to mention that because that has been my mission in life since. Like enable people to get value from from data. Uh, I, Good mission. I moved on to Shipstead, uh, a, uh, a former manager at, at um, Google contacted me uh, and said, we're going to build a central tech organization with, with a central data platform. Do you want to come here and, and like architect the, the data platform for us? And uh, Shipstead was not so is not so well known in tech uh, in the tech world, but there were like all in all with all the uh, the uh, clones of Blocket and all mm. of the newspapers that they own and so forth. There were like two hundred million users uh, who who were generating data, so that seemed like an interesting uh, uh, endeavor, right? It, and it was a way to sort of uh, I re- reckon it had like a ten percent chance of, of creating a, a Scandinavian internet giant, uh, mm. and and if I got the chance to be in early on that, I, I wanted that chance, uh, and we succeeded extremely well in recruiting really good tech people, mm. uh, but nevertheless we were not set up for for success. Um, so it has uh, they have picked apart this organization after that. There were lots of interesting tech were being done and it was a very educational journey, but it eventually collapsed under its own size in, in a sense. Um, this is another very interesting yeah, discussion about, you know, centralized versus decentralized. And organized and all that. So let's, let's also park that in our head. <laughs> we, we, we will have three hours today, Anders, yeah, I think. Exactly. So, yeah. so um, I, after a while, I met some really, really good people there uh, and learned a lot from, from doing things with, with, uh, with the Greenfield. Um, and, uh, but I went, went on to, uh, to become an independent consultant and, uh, uh, with the mission to help organizations get more value from data. Uh, and I've had a wide range of clients, uh, some weird startups, uh, some uh, AI and other things. Um, I've been back at Spotify a couple of times uh, doing consulting, which is interesting because what you planted a couple of years ago, you can now see how, how it has evolved and so forth. So, so that has been very educational. Um, and I've been at, at a number of banks. I spent uh, a, a significant time at SEB, uh, for example, when they were doing a sort of a big data project. Um, and my last and most successful uh, engagement was at Bonnier News. So Dagens Nyheter, uh, Express and Dagens Industri, uh, uh, half of the major Swedish newspapers, the half that's not Shipstad. Um, and that was interesting because then, by then I had realized that many of these big data efforts are like suffering from way, way too much complexity. Uh, there are all of these piles of technology toppling over each other. Uh, so, uh, I had the trust of the, of the CTO, uh, and, uh, and the sort of the lead architect at the company who, who was our champion and I, and I, uh, got the opportunity to do, do a build a platform there for, for data processing by scaling everything out that was not necessary. So we did the simplest possible thing, but implemented the, the sort of the important workflows and the democratization of data and getting things working and so forth. And uh, when you see these, these sort of big Hadoop project or big data efforts, 
on the large companies, it takes six, nine months, up to two, three years to get them into production. Uh, like from the day that I walked in, had a, a hand, like three, four people to work with, to the moment that we had a, a, a pipeline in production and a client, an internal customer um, who we had to find first, uh, that said, yes, this saves a lot of my time. This is very valuable. That was three weeks. And and then the, that is the shortest I've, I've ever seen into the, from from nothing so. into into production. But, uh, but I, I I know we have talked about this before, and and we can also come here. But but this is one of the key simplicity reduce complexity is one of the key topics. And and I think going into even how you measure KPIs, you know, how many pipelines can you put in production per month is a very interesting metric that not very many people do. Uh, yes, I, I can rant about this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get there later. Yeah? But this Let's is go there later, yes. Be, be, because now we are sort of getting here and now uh, I guess we are soon arriving at um, Skling. Exactly. So um, what after this, I had hooked up with, with an old uh, colleague from Shipstead and we said, Let, let's do a startup. Uh, uh, and to some degree, this was a reaction on, on I have so limited power to actually enable these companies because they, they are uh, hindered by their own ways of working, their culture and their organizations and so forth. I think we can have more impact if we do something externally. And I had, during my freelancing, I had contact with a number of made large uh, Scandinavian corporations, either direct or indirect hearing from others who, who were there, uh, many of them in the Wallenberg uh, family. So, so I heard directly or indirectly from, from like Atlas Copco and Electrolux and SKF and, and Husqvarna and, and so forth. Right? And the impression that we got was that they want to buy big data. Right? They want, or they want, nowadays they want to buy AI, uh, you know, get a box, unpack it, put it in a rack, turn on the power, get a service uh, agreement uh, and so forth. And now we, we have AI or we have big data. And that makes perfect, we can laugh at it, right? But it makes perfect sense. It's not their core business, right? The, uh, so it's not so easy to just, you know, flip the company over and become data driven or, or AI driven. They, uh, why can't it be a commodity, just like power or electrical power or commuting or, or, or computing nowadays? I think it clients. will be at some point in the future, like big data or AI or HP. To, to some degree. Uh, I mean, lots lots of uh, exotic computing things that we used to think were, were weird, like, you know, internet and, and yeah. so is, is a commodity today, so, right? Yeah. So. Uh, so it's it's not a weird thing to think. So uh, we scratched our heads and we said, okay, how can we uh, supply this? Right? Uh, I'm what I've seen the the ways for the non. I mean, if if you're a super technical company, then you're self sufficient. But for the non super technical companies, which we have lots, we have lots of really good companies that I would like out there that I would like to help. Uh, for them to tackle these things and get the val these superpowers of, of data and AI, right? how, how can they do this? They, they have a, it's a fairly short menu today, right? They can, uh, they can hire consultants, uh, which, is, which can do customized things for them. But you have to, in, if, in order to hire consultants, you have to know really well what you want, right? 
And, and that works in the construction industry because it's so well established. But mm. as a buyer, you are not competent enough to buy the right things. And the, and the incentives are wrong because the consultants have really have strong incentives to build very complex things and topple all of these technologies on top of each other so they, they can... Uh, Stay forever and make money on the licenses. Or show it. off for, the, for their next uh, employment or, or, or whatever, right? The, uh, and I don't, think, I don't think that the consultants are bad people in any way, it's, but the incentives are set that way, right? They, uh, and that changes people's behavior. So, Malay, it's not only the consultants, it's, it's the whole uh, the, the vendor licensing models and how you want to get people into the one and same universe good or bad, there's a many dimensions here that the whole industry together, vendor, consultants, recruitment, brokering, it kind of, I think they're all moving uh, in the wrong, it, it, together it's actually a, a bad spiral instead of a good spiral. That's what I hear and this is, I've been on the same path. Is this the right, is the industry set up where it should be? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, that brings us to vendors, which which is one of the other options on the menu, right? If, if particularly if you have a relation with, with like IBM, Informatica, Oracle, yeah. SAP, whatever, then uh, you can say, okay, what's on your menu? What do you offer? And, and uh, okay, we now have, have this deep learning, this or, or web analytics, that, and so forth. Uh, and then you tr- sort of trust the the vendor, uh, uh, and and you ride along with them. That, now there there are good. Uh, there are benefits, there are pros and cons here. One, one of the cons is that uh, these are not the ones driving the innovation today. Nope. If, you go, if you go to the technical conferences, they're completely dominated by the high-tech uh, product companies and the, and the cloud vendors and open source, uh, essentially. Uh, exactly. So, um, so what else can you do? Well, you can find specific solutions to niche problem. You can, you know, get your web analytics things from, from Mixpanel or Google Analytics, and then you can get your deep learning things from, from Piltarion, and then you can get your BI things from, from, from Snowflake or Power BI or something. And then you solve problems in a siloed manner. And where's the factory? Uh, exactly. You don't, you don't get a factory. And if you, for those problems, if you have a match, then that's usually efficient. But you don't get this bottom-up innovation that we see when we democratize uh, the data. Uh, so, so, so there are pros and cons here. Uh, and I think none of these options are even close to matching the value that we see in, in, in companies like, like uh, Spotify or Google in, in terms of creating value from data. Yeah. So I firmly believe that we need to find new ways to collaborate. Is that the, um, the, the, the idea of Skling? Or? Skling is, is the pronunciation, yes. yes. Uh, is, this, is this short for scaling or what's the it, origin? It's a, it's a reused name. I'm very environmentally friendly. Uh, so it was actually a, <laughs> a, a, a name for an earlier startup that never left the hobby, uh, hobby phase. And uh, then uh, it was a combination between, uh, that was a natural language processing idea. Mm. So it was a combination between science, language, Ling as a uh, language and scaling. Uh, so, but but it, I like short names, mm. uh, and it's very hard to find a good name where the com domain is, is yeah. free. Right. <laughs> so, so I, I and I was tired of finding names, and I got got some. Good so, what was the core <laughs> idea now of, yeah. of Sling? Let's go exactly. there. So, what's, what's uh, the core value proposition? The core value proposition is to extract value from from data on behalf of our customers by collaborating closely with them. 
So we, you remember the the arrogance which we spoke about earlier between mm. the you know the domain experts who think how hard can data be and the data or AI experts who think how hard can a domain be. Mm. So we want to respect both of these uh, competences by uh, collaborating with the people that have the have the data and the domain knowledge and work with them. Uh, and if these companies. Uh, that that we turn to if the if they were technical enough and had the volume to build their own data departments and so forth they they would and sh- perhaps should do that mm. but so we are an an partnership alternative to uh, building your own so 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 when when companies think hey maybe we should hire this uh, chief data officer and, and let him build it, a team of five ten twenty people that we are an alternative to that uh, strategy. So if any company wants to start or really, you know, get bootstrapped into the data journey and becoming data ready in some way, that could be an option to turn to you and scling. Exactly. And the way it works in practice is that we set up flows from their system, from their databases or or their mm-hmm. Google Analytics or Salesforce accounts and so and so forth into our own platform which runs in a, in a major cloud mm. uh, and uh, we build together with with, with the uh, uh, with the domain experts build these data flows and data pipelines and so forth we run them we operate them we host them mm. so and it's a refinery so we get raw data in and we yeah. pr- produce re- refined data <laughs> but, 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 but i think can we segue now into uh, the next theme a little bit yeah <laughs> if it's the right theme Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but because because here I think this uh, one of the most interesting thing with what Sling is doing is actually, in a way, t- trying to understand where is the future type of alternative business model comes and going, or where are we where are we heading when it comes to data, and even to the point where we talk about data pipelines as a service. And I find that super interesting to explore a little bit because, you know, a lot of companies, I mean, like, it's not only about the complexity, it's also about, oh, I have a CopEx constraint, I have an OPEX constraint, I have a full-time equivalent recruitment constraint. So I know a bunch of companies, they, they got the money, but they have put they are not supposed to recruit anymore. So as a service, uh, and we need to build buy this as a service, it's very in, uh, interesting and it's done quite elaborately in different fields. And here we now have Sling as a service, data as a pipeline. So how did you, you know, so, so this is sort of, I, I think this is new territory to be honest, right? Where this is going and how it could evolve. And, but I think it's also something about is the consultant, is the whole industry, the way we are tackling this, is it the right way or are there other ways? And I think Skling is now really exploring new territory, which I think is cool. Yeah, uh, for good and for bad. Uh, the uh, We definitely are. Um, and I, I, the only thing that I'm convinced of is that we need to explore new territory in terms of ways of, of collaborating and, and business models. Uh, and... We are small, uh, so we can, we explore one variant, right? And I'm sure that we will slightly pivot along the path and, and find new ways of interacting with the clients, depending on wh- how technical they are and, and which domain they're in. 
And uh, I think we will need to experiment with the business model. We have a, we have uh, today, we have a value based business model where you sort of, you pay for the, for the value that you get out of it in terms of, of pipelines rather than uh, paying for hours. Uh, but that is difficult to sell because people know how to sell, how to buy hours, right? And they know how to buy software as a service, but they don't really know how to buy value in a, in a domain or in a tech area that's new for them. Uh, so sometimes people ask me, well, uh, what, don't you need to move faster and expand faster and so forth? What, what happens if one of the big consultancy, gi- consultancy giants adopt this model? And I think, that will be great because then we can point at, look at them, you know, Accenture or Tieto or whatever. They're doing this. We're doing the same thing. But, but here are our technical, here are our credentials. Mm. Uh, then we are competing with someone and that would be perfect because that, that would help us explain the, it, the because model. Because to some degree, we're exploring new service categories. Exactly. Uh, and, and that is, turns out to be much more difficult than, than uh, the technology. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's try to move into a topic that I think is uh, rather interesting. And, and I know you worked a lot with in, in Spotify as well, um, who made the journey from going from on-premise to the cloud, which was a multi-year you know, endeavor and, and took a lot of, time and money and effort and they did a lot of mistakes i think but still you know made it um so what would you say let's say that we have a company today some swedish company that's getting a bit threatened perhaps by amazon moving to sweden and uh, perhaps it's a retailer perhaps it's yeah some similar company and say we really need to get you know data ready now should we move to the cloud or not what's the the first answer you would say to that um Moving to the cloud is ex- for a, a purely on-premise company that does not have the experience of managing the cloud is a significant uh, undertaking, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't. It it took how long did it take Spotify? A couple of years? Five years, I think. Or yeah, something like that. I think they still have some on-prem stuff. But it's oh, maybe. They, so, uh, what was the rationale for Spotify to go to the cloud? Focus. Focus. Spotify is very focused on media, period, and, and audio media in, in you, particular. We don't want to run data centers. Exactly. So it, it was a way to, to focus on what they're good at in their business uh, and so forth. That, w- that was a strategic explanation. Uh, and uh, running data centers and all of the low-level nitty-gritty stuff uh, is a, uh, has a significant cost, a massive cost. Uh, in terms of, of people. And when you're constrained by how many, if you want to grow and you're constrained by people, that is that is very expensive. Uh, I would claim that long-term there are also uh, security uh, aspects here. Benefits. The, yeah, definitely. The, to go to the cloud. Absolutely. Uh, because it's interesting everybody says oh it's scary to go to the cloud but the people who know says no 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 you this is naive to think you're more secure than a super center of aws or gcp or azure or yeah the 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 people that say the uh, you know we need our own data centers because they're secure then you go and look at their security practices and (laughs) and then you cry a bit Uh, (laughs) i i think it's going to be you know for fast forward 10 20 years it's going to be completely obvious and and we are going to look at how blatantly naive we were with running our own 
machines and you know having these machines that haven't been rebooted in two years right if 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 you get a if you get a foothold in one of those machines <coughs> you're in there forever right? as an attacker right whereas the you know the containers we run in the cloud they live for hours and then they go down and so even if even if you manage to crack something in there then you're killed after a while so so you get much more so th- so so i think this is all interesting because the naivety of of IT security, we look at one thing and we look at, to- it's a little bit like filtering mosquitoes when not really looking at the fundamentals like this. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But the, coming back to your question, the um, should we go to the cloud? Security is also one of the main challenges because whereas the cloud can be much more secure than on-prem, the security paradigms and models and techniques Different. techniques and knowledge that you need is completely different so all of the competence that you have running on-prem is not necessary valid on and just for people that don't un- really understand you know what cloud computing is about and what the difference is to actually having your own hard drive you have to manage or operating system you have to manage and whatnot some people you know try to describe this perhaps in a bit simplistic way of saying you build different level of abstraction, saying you know you don't manage your hardware, you don't manage the operating system, you don't manage the application, and you continuously move up this like ladder of abstractions. Do you think that's a good way, or how would you describe you know the in the move or what cloud computing is all about? Yeah, first first and for, uh, foremost, cloud contu- computing is somebody else's computer, right? It, it's mm. something you, that you rent rather than you buy. Uh, and then there are different ladders of, of like uh, abstraction here. And yeah. from the low level, you know, infrastructure as a service where you have your virtual machines and your networks and so forth, uh, they're virtual, but they work the same. And I, I've met companies that have a data center in, in the cloud. They have all of these virtual machines and then they control the routing with OSPF and standard routing protocols between <laughs> them. And... In a way, as a transition, that might actually make some sense. Mm. Uh, but then it, this is a data center virtualization. This is a data center business case. Yeah, a, a rent a data center essentially. But but that can be one iteration towards go, going f- going full cloud. Uh, at Spotify, we call that uh, the the forklift. Right, we just took what we have and put mm. it on virtual machines as one step. Lift toward. and shift. Exactly, um, and. So uh, let's see, where was I? Abstraction. What's next? Yeah, the, the, the abs- and there, there are many abstraction levels. Like the, then, there, then there is the uh, the platform as a service things. Right? You don't run MySQL yourself. You ask you ask uh, Google or Amazon to run MySQL. Uh, and but you code on SQL. You, yeah, yeah, exactly. You you and the, the the APIs are essentially the same. And the for these low level things, uh, the the only difference, there is no difference as a developer, but there is a difference as an operator. And as it, uh, there's no difference as an application developer, except that you probably are also shifting at the same time to the DevOps mentality where the developers sort of own the infrastructure. Uh, but the difference is in the control plane, uh, because instead of wiring physical things, you wire things with API calls. Uh, to the uh, to the cloud, and you use tools like Terraform or Tulumi or Pulumi to to sort of wire things up instead. Um, 
And that is a significant difference in terms of how you operate things and also for in terms of, of security. Because these uh, control planes that are given by the cloud are very tightly controlled. And, and uh, some of the things that you can do with them, you had to do over the standard network in your on-premise environment. So you would have to SSH into boxes and, and so forth. And that is much less secure than going using the cloud's control plane to control them instead of instead of sharing the control and, and the, the data plane. So, so the cloud is more than just you know having or not having to manage the hardware. It's actually also managing other things like the software as well, the operating system. What yes, uh, and then there then there are higher this, layers. Uh, so as now well. we are a. IAAS, exactly. PAAS, and let's now go to SaaS. So, and then, then we have a container as a service uh, as well, where, where, you just, middle, yeah? Yeah, where you just ask a container to run somewhere. Uh, and then a function as a service, you, mm. uh, which is in, in a way a, a way to uh, resurrect Java beans. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. So yeah, or stored procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and then... Uh, um, you, at the top, you you sort of have the software as a service, where which you know G Suite uh, and so forth, which is Dynamic, completely completely non technical. Mm. Yeah, and and then there are hybrids here so as well. Th- this is an interesting question, and and of course we we know there are a couple of leading cloud providers today, and they're clearly leading. I mean, there are many of them, but I think there are three, four American ones and a couple of. Um, a couple of uh, Chinese ones, and there are a large number of others. But this, th- do you know of any kind of European cloud providers that we have today? The, there is Amazon, there, there's Google, and there's Microsoft, and then there's nothing, 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 mm. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, even even if you go to the to this sort of the second tier far below, mm. uh, the I don't know what Alibaba has, but I think that's impressive. But otherwise, it's all American. Mm. Right? Uh, do you think that's a problem? Yes. Why? Uh, because, to be honest, we don't. Uh, we are completely dependent on cloud on on these major cloud providers today. We, if we were to not use them, we are at a significant disadvantage to the rest of the to 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 uh, to, uh, to competitors that are are in the cloud. In particular, if you, if you're doing high tech or startups or, and so forth, and there is no cloud provider in a from a european perspective trustworthy uh, democracy and justice system today um, and, i mean we've seen if you if you look at the democracy index uh, the us has been has been steadily falling there and we have the uh, the privacy shield that was uh, considered not new now with the, with the uh, shrimps to uh, uh, case. Um, so what, what was, is the privacy shield? So, so what the, is that all about? And what does it really mean for everybody who's using American? Good point, good point. So uh, GDPR puts a number of requirements on how you handle personal data, right? Uh, so it uh, it allows you to store data at other providers. Then if, if, if I take, if I have a company and I take your data, uh, to do something, maintain your Tamagotchis or, or, or whatever, uh, then I am the data controller. I have a relation with you. And I can use other companies, and they are the data processors. Uh, 
uh, for example, I can store. Uh, so we are, we are referring actually to GDPR roles now: data exactly. controller, data processor. Exactly, and these. This is- and I make, com- by taking your personal data, I make some commitments to you, right? I, I make some commitments that, that I will treat it securely and not uh, not uh, allow anybody else except my data processors, which I enumerate, uh, to, to, to uh, handle these data. And um, I uh, make a commitment that if you want to delete your data, I will go to to my wherever it's stored and I have processes and to do it within a certain amount of time. Exactly, and so forth, right? And, and th- that means in relation with my data processors, I uh, must be able to enforce them not to share it with someone else and to delete it and so forth. Now, if they are, if we're here in Sweden and these are, this is a data center company in Sweden, everything is fine because they're under Swedish law and, and, and any European Union company, this is fine because they all respect this law and so forth. But after the, I think the um, uh, Patriot Act in the United States, uh, they, the U.S. basically says that U.S. security interest trumps these things right and then they there was a there was an agreement called the privacy shield which, which uh, stated that uh, all data under the gdpr essentially is uh, we will respect those laws right if if even if you store these with with an Amer- this data with an american company we will respect these things and now with the recent uh, case that's called schrems 2 i believe max schrems is a german uh, Privacy enthusiast, I think. Uh, it was found in, in EU court that uh, this is insufficient. The guarantees that the privacy shield gives, along with the US uh, legal system, the US jurisdiction, is not sufficient. And where was this, when was this case published? This is like a like month, a month ago, ago or something. Month ago? Yeah. So it's very recent. Uh, so <laughs> right now, everybody's like ducking their what heads into mean? the sand. Uh, and and pretend that it didn't really happen. Uh, but long term, this is not sufficient, right? Either the U.S. jurisdiction will have to change so that they uh, prioritize the. They need G- to respect, in some ways, European law if they want to be providers to Europe. I, I, essentially, yes. So uh, and sort of promise that the the NSA will not go uh, and look at your data w- uh, without due process, basically. Um, and uh, I don't think that's going to happen uh, anytime soon. So let, let's flip it. What will it take, or what would be the smartest strategy to get a solid European cloud provider? How would we go about fixing I, that? I am afraid that I don't have an answer. Uh, I this is a the, to create something that compete with the three major providers is extremely difficult, right? It, it requires a but huge let me dig a bit deeper into so that forth. question then, because you know one way to talk about this is to say you can do a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach. And what I mean with that is basically top-down means you do the Chinese way, basically saying the government Shit, saying, money, you know, decide exactly this is the way it should be done, and you pour money from the government into building up an infrastructure or whatnot. Or you can take a more bottom-up approach saying you, you have the companies and they will actually build up something and you will rely on the market that they would market actually come choices. up with some kind of solution that works for it. What do you what would you say? This is a difficult question, of course. But what would you think would be a, a good way in Europe 
to actually have, at least at some point in the future, some cloud provider that is getting closer, at least, to the top cloud providers? Yeah, I, I don't think a top-down approach is viable. I think there will be attempts at this, uh, but the, and, and shaking up uh, vast mo- volumes of money, I think, is possible. But shaking up the competence to build such an organization, both in terms of leadership and technical, and and then get the trust to actually get the uh, volumes of customers that you need, mm. I don't see that happening. I, I, I what's the problem? Well, competence. The yes, on on so many levels, and and uh, and under and and. An understanding of how much we don't know and don't understand about how uh, the cloud providers actually work and, and what what they have inside that enable these capabilities. I've met lots of people that think, you know, say, you know, how hard can it be? We have yeah. a good startup here. We've just give them a bit more money, they will create something fantastic. Yeah. And I was like, you, you, you're. You are so many levels down on ignorance, right? It's not only that that you don't know what it's about. You don't know what you don't know, and you don't know how uh, how to figure out what it is that you don't know. Uh, I, mean, so I think this is an important point. People think that you know we can just build up an infrastructure in Sweden by having a, a cluster of some machines, and you have some GPU machines, and then we have a cloud in Sweden, and awesome. And they don't really recognize, right, all the software and levels above that that's necessary to come even close to what the cloud providers have today, right? Yeah. But 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 let's now. You worked at Spotify, so let's really. I mean, like, so we say that, but c- could you give a couple of examples? I mean, like, because you were we are already on it already. That already when you worked at Spotify, it was clearly a factory and industrialized approach. But could we give some c- simple examples, a way to make that more tangible? Um, maybe it's like how you say they have structured process. I mean, like in, indirectly we can hear it. They have testing, they have everything, right? But th- what we are saying something is true, right? Uh, they have so much depth of this competence of what they're doing. But is there any way to make that exemplified or tangible so it becomes more concrete for the people who's not in the know? It, maybe it's from some of the examples that you had from Spotify. Uh, I'm not sure. Le- let me give you... One example from from Google uh, instead. A Google, I meant. I'm, I yeah, was oh, right. we talked uh, about Google. Sorry, I. So uh, Google has a vast amount of of code, right? But they they also have lots of products. So so it's it's no surprise. But if you look at these diagrams of how much code uh, different organizations have, you know, Google, Facebook, uh, Audi, uh, Linux kernel, and so forth. And like Google is is way beyond everybody else. Um, there. If you look at how much of that code is touched each month and changed each month, what do you think the answer would be? I, I actually think they're grooming it all the time, if I understand you right. 50%. This, this number is a few years old, but nevertheless, it's the same, right? And, the, you know, if we look back at, at Spotify and what, what would it take Spotify to be able to touch all of the half of the code we had in one month, we were nowhere near that, right? We, we, we so didn't Spotify have Spotify is, is like the sh- superstar in Sweden, exactly. but nowhere near. Exactly. Um, and That's a good example. Yeah. 
And you could see, when I work at Google, you could see these, these changes. Here's a change. It touches 5,000 lines of code. And it was like, what? Or, or sorry, 5,000 different files. And how could any human possibly do that? No, it was, you know, these bots that went around and changed the code. And, and if you rolled out changes like, you know, these, these routines now should take a new parameter with, a, with an authentication token or something like that was rolled out within, within days. Yeah, so also what automated you're, refactoring. So you, you're, you're saying there is a lot of stuff as part of CI, CD, or however you want to call it, that is automated, that is happening, that really has this, this sort of factory, I changed this, and then it's no humans going around and changing those, you know, 50% of the code, yes. it's bots doing it. And we are very only very recently seeing this in, in, the, in the wild, right? There, there are these bots, for example, that go and submit PRs to GitHub with security uh, changes and so forth. Uh, this is like 15 years later, right? Uh, so. So I don't see any company or organization in Europe being able to catch up with that. That that's not realistic. So I think your your view of a bottom up approach is more reasonable. And and if uh, some it needs to be open. Other, uh, otherwise it, it's mean. Otherwise we can't do it bottom up because that we need to have it's a, really open source stuff. Yeah, and, and I started thinking along those lines when, when you sent out some some preparatory mm. questing the other day, and I was like, yeah, maybe something open source standards sounds like a lot like OpenStack, mm-hmm. right? but that has the wrong smell, it, and it, it never took off for, for 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 good reasons. What is OpenStack? Oh, it's it's a uh, open source. Um, uh, like pile of different projects that are similar to the base uh, cloud uh, things like uh, virtual machines and object stores and uh, and so forth with a standardized interface. But it has this, uh, man, many jumped on it, but it has this enterprise smell that but, is, isn't right. But maybe there's another strategy that like you can't uh, maybe compete on this generalist view. So maybe maybe you need to be more niched Maybe you need to figure this out. European style is different; that it, you don't try to compete head to head, but you do a you know niche strategy. So transportation, energy, and you get the de facto standard cloud set up energy with the de facto standards on on even protocols and, and I don't know. I'm just, I'm just maybe maybe and and uh, maybe we can take inspired inspiration from how the internet succeeded, mm. right? Which which is a very federated, decentralized thing. Uh, and maybe there's something similar, but, but, you know, running clouds is, is all about, it's very operationally heavy. Uh, and that's the, the operations is like the real value of it. Somebody else. Right? And that's if difficult. we try to summarize that, I think we can all agree that it is a big difference between the tech giants of the world and the rest of the companies in the world. Right. Yes. And yes. I don't think many people understand how big, the, how big that difference is. No, right. No. Yeah. They, it, it is huge. Yeah. I, th- I think the, there, if you look at any company and you ask them to do a spider diagram of their mm. of their capabilities, you know, and, and you say IT here and logistics there and mm. take different dimensions, they will all give themselves, you know, oh, we have a five on and four or six mm. on, a, on a 10 grade scale. And they will think that they are like quite good at everything. Mm. Uh, whereas I, at least in IT, the reality is not all, at all like that. There are mm. the, the, the companies that are best at something, they, they are decades ahead of everyone else. So everyone else, all companies, even them, mm. all companies have, are, are like, you know, at one level one, except for in something that they're really good. Yeah, and, and to not become too um, 
uh, depressed <laughs> about the current <laughs> situation. I mean, we know they have the tech giants and they are you know, very far ahead. But if you instead compare countries with each other and, and think like the average kind of American company or average Chinese company to the average Swedish or European country, what do you think the situation is there? I think that we have some unique strengths that mm. are different. Yeah. I, I think if we you know go back to the spider diagram, we are good, really good at some things yeah. that the American companies are not so good at uh, because of culture or, or different things. And that was a really realization going from Google and then coming from Spotify because the Spotify is not so great at the things that are Google are, are mm. super super good at. But the the weak points in Google. Spotify is is, mm. is top, top. Can you give world. an example of that? Uh, uh, give, getting the most value out of a team of people—that mm. is—that uh, uh, is something that Spotify really excels at. Mm. And uh, Google's approach to it was to, of course, scientific. They eventually ran these different measurements of how people work together and so forth. And it was called Project Aristoteles and something yeah, else. And, I read and, that paper. And, and took a scientific approach and, and so said, what, what is most important? Is it the, the, you know, the people recruit? No. Is it the, the different programming languages? No. Mm-hmm. Skills? No, no, no. Uh, it turned out to be psychological safety in a team, right? Mm-hmm. Being Allowing people to be vulnerable. And what they described is, well, this is Spotify's company culture. Right. This and this is very natural for for Scandinavian companies, mm. uh, and it took them like a decade to figure that out. With, with mm. and we have some kind of culture in in Scandinavia that is perhaps very valuable. And well. there's a lot of trust, and there's there's like team before individuals, mm. uh, and uh, being part of a of a greater whole. So, and if you look back, even if you look back, uh, um, Scandinavian companies have been good at building like systems and things that connect together. I think that's the, that culture is part of Ericsson's success, I'm, I'm convinced, right? It's a big global world system. Yes, that fits the sort of Swedish culture, whereas detailed innovation fits the American culture much mm. better. I want to come back to the earth when it comes to cloud. <laughs> uh, so I want to ask a very simple question. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit about when? what was the strategy and what was the process when Spotify went to the cloud. What what was the, the the learnings? What was the pitfalls? What would you have done differently? So tell us a little bit about your experiences from moving Spotify to cloud and what y- your role was. There are some excellent uh, YouTube videos by uh, Ramon van Alteren and Josh Bear on this topic. They they, they were m- much more involved. Uh, so I mostly saw it from the side because this journey started after I left as an employee, but I saw it as a, when I okay, came back as a consultant. So it it was a very much uh, iterative approach. Uh, the the uh, you cannot do these things big bang. So so the um, the for for the data part, it, it's fairly easy, relatively easy because you're all offline, right? So if you go down a little while, nobody gets immediately affected. If you think of things like login services and playlist services, they cannot be. Offline, it has happened, but that's a that's significant outage, right? Uh, so then they had to be much more careful and setting up parallel databases, and and 
And those were uh, almost exclusively forklifted, so they would set up a Cassandra cluster in, in the cloud to host just a, you know, a few employees in the beginning. They, since Spotify has always been multi, or si- since way back, been multi-data center. So then, you, then taking the step to be a data center in the cloud is in a way fairly straightforward because it's just yet another Cassandra cluster. But you have to, uh, there are a number of assumptions uh, that you have to validate with in terms of, of uh, quantitative assumptions and, and uh, you know, performance and, and network bandwidth and latency and so mm. forth and uh, that are no longer valid if, if you don't control the machines all the way down. So uh, my understanding is that was quite quite a bit of work in those areas. But the, the whole process was uh, decentralized. So all of the teams had... Uh, were expected to at at the a suitable time figure uh, their fi- own journey figure out their own journey and um, Spotify has an interesting uh, way of prioritizing and and uh, uh, managing these sort of strategic uh, efforts uh, this, this sort of the the sequel to the Spotify model it's something called dib I don't know if they still use it but they used it at the time. And uh, there was a way to drive uh, strategic priorities by uh, the central point of this is is a uh, a fully uh, transparent prioritized list of all the pri- all the company priorities. So so we in the past there have been things like you know become GDPR uh, compliant and uh, launching in Japan and and things like this, and and those things have all have a specific priority and only one is the top priority and uh, at the bottom level you say uh, you might be working on something with with you know priority two or something and then you need help from another team and you go to them and, and say hey i need you for this uh we're busy they say and uh, what are you working on priority seven they say okay put that aside we're, we have priority two here and that works very beautifully in in a way to to like move strategic things forward in a, in a fully decentralized and, and low friction Very interesting. manner. So, so moving to, to GCP was one of the things that popped you know, up and down on this priority list. And, and that's how they control the, the speed of that move. Mm. Cool. Um, I have some other topics I'd like let's, to uh, move, let's move into. And, and one of the interesting, I think, unique knowledges that you have is that you've been working with HPC and you've been working with AI, you've been working with big data. And I know we, we even sent people from Peltorin to your course in big data and things like that. And, and, and you, you're an authoritative, so to speak, in, in these kind of fields. Let me make a statement and, and you can disagree and um, have a discussion about this. But I, I would say, you know, I think a few people understand the difference or the problem with moving from having an algorithm, whatever it is, running on a single CPU with a shared memory into moving into, let's say, a big data setting. And there is a lot of work you have to do to change that algorithm, make it work in a paralyzed setting. I hope you agree so far, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I would argue that although that HPC and AI are different in terms of how the parallelization works and how the shared memory works, it's still the same problem if you want to move something to an HPC or traditional HPC setting and like a GPU-based AI setting. 
Would you agree with that as well? Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and speaking, you know, as as the big data expert you are, and uh, you know, having giving courses from from Rice and whatnot in, in this, what would you say the top challenges are in trying to have an algorithm? Let's whatever kind of search algorithm, whatnot, and making that work in a parallelized fashion on like Hadoop, Spark, or something like that. What, what are the problems with that, really? Okay, the, the first problem is um, why do you even do this in the first place? Mm-hmm. So the first rule of distributed systems is avoid distributed systems. <laughs> so Especially Hadoop, right? <laughs> well, or, or any <laughs> distributed system, right? So uh, do you really have a return of investment in, in going parallel? Mm-hmm. And usually the answer to that question is no mm-hmm. for the vast majority of tasks. Yes, right? Good point. Um, in many cases, you can sp- um, let me back off a bit here. Um, let me tell you an anecdote. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. I uh, I was contacted by a Finnish startup, and they needed some assistance. They couldn't. They had some change learning jobs or whatever. They couldn't mm-hmm. uh, get to work, and uh, you, they used to work, but they don't anymore. So, okay. Uh, what happened? Well, uh, and there was some rounds back and forth. I couldn't figure out what they were doing wrong. And they said, then they gave me a link to a blog post. Here, these guys have the same problem. It's it, The problem is S3. They have their data in S3. The S3 and Spark. Okay. And it turns out, uh, when I read the blog post, I realized that there was this company. And uh, every time they retrained, uh, and every time they processed with all of the data cleaning, feature extraction, preparation, and then uh, retraining, uh, they were doing that on all history, but way back to like 2013 or, or when they started. And this worked great for a while and then became slower and slower and slower and slower, right? Um, and we actually had a, a, a case of that, uh, I think, as, at Spotify as well, which was discovered only when we moved to the cloud because there, there were these people that were reprocessing all of the data since way back in time. And turn out they had taken like 20, 10% of the Hadoop cluster and nobody ever noticed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, so they got help to rewrite their algorithm, mm-hmm. not in a parallel way, but in an incremental way. Uh-huh. So, uh, so rather than... So rather than processing the raw data, they would build a, a you know proper pipeline where where you would uh, clean the data one you know one hour or one day of data at a time, and then um, get a, the features out and, and blah blah blah, and then only at the last step you need all of the data to do the retraining if you have a neural net, for example. Right. Uh, and and this is something that I uh, bring up in, in my courses as well as, as one of the examples uh, and say that this this is something you need to look for. This is important. Uh, in that case, I'm, I'm showing, you know, if you want to count the most popular songs uh, by country or whatever, mm. right, you, you can, th- that's a two-step algorithm, right? You can do first all of the counting of the songs to, to one data set, and then you can do the comparisons in the second set, mm. and only the comparison do you need to redo. Mm. So the first level to parallelize at is on the workflow level, right? They figure out what steps you can do separately. And that's not parallelized with, with like Spark or MapReduce. That's parallelized with workflow orchestration. At Spotify, we use Luigi, which mm-hmm. I happen to be 
a fondo for these things, but there are others like Airflow, Dexter, and so forth nowadays. Uh, and these, this workflow, that, that's one of the most common mistakes in, in big data, not grasping and getting full hold of, of these workflow engines. I see so many companies that struggle with this, even companies that you think are fairly mature. That's one of the things that we really nailed that Spotify and became good at. Yeah. So instead of reprocessing so let, all the so data, let's, you let's talk about this now because we, <laughs> but we're talking okay. about some really important stuff here that you know it's Greek to me, but and I think it's Greek to a lot of people starting up with with big big data and they have a, a traditional hat on. They've been do, do, doing data warehousing. So what are you talking about when you say you are breaking down the workflow and what what is Luigi? What is Airflow? So, what is workflow orchestration? Uh, those are good questions. So. Uh, uh, Luigi, Airflow, and so forth, they, we call them workflow orchestrators. They, they are basically the data equivalent of a build system like Make or Maven or, or, or Ant or Gradle. What's uh, their purpose? Their purpose is to figure out what data you want to have processed, which you specify in, uh, by specifying your, uh, the sort of desired data sets that you want out and, and the dependencies between them. So in order to calculate the most popular songs for this month uh, per country, I'm going to need the data for each day during this month, right? So that's 30 ba basic data sets. And in order to uh, compute them, I need to... Uh, and do it th this in two steps. So I take the, the, the events from all of the songs and I do that in a, one step and per day count or make, uh, do all of the counts per country. And then in the second step, I do it on, on a sort of monthly basis where I compare. Uh, so in, in the workflow orchestrators, we describe these dependency patterns. And anybody who has worked with software uh, is, f is familiar with this, in particular if you work with old tools like Make, where you say, I want this software artifact to be built. Nowadays, it's a container image, but it used to be a jar or an executable. And in order to do that, you need to uh, build these, uh, these object files from source. And in order to get this source file, you need to build this generator of, of source and so forth. So that's a, another type of dependency tree. And every time you run these, uh, these sort of uh, dependency management tools, they will figure out, well, uh, I already run these tools, and they and the and uh, so I don't need to do that again. And the and the information hasn't changed. So let me just do the last little piece, right? And any software engineer will expect these tools. And uh, if you go back to when my dad used to work, that he would write uh, scripts that did this from the beginning to the end, like you know, thirty different invocations of the of the Fortran compiler. Uh, and uh, because that was the, the sort of the state of art at the time, and it wouldn't care whether uh, something actually needed to be rebuilt or not. It would just do everything from top to bottom. Uh, but now, fast forward to 2020, we still see many companies working in this day, this manner with data. They have a script where they run everything from top to bottom and do that once an hour or once a day or something. Um, and that and that give. You can make a factory that way, but it is very, very fragile because if something breaks somewhere, uh, your whole pipeline is Because I, I think this is talking about why big enterprises do not succeed with their big data efforts or getting value or getting really speed and all that. I think there's a fundamental misconception. And I think there is a lot of people who moved into this space that started in the data warehousing space. They started with the star schema ideas and all that. 
So could you elaborate a little bit about what is the fundamental difference in thinking here? Uh, that gets us back to the factories again, right? It's <coughs> thinking... Uh, if you go back a bit in time and or, or how many of the enterprises still work, they're still working with... Um, like craftsman's tools. And, it, and uh, so they're working with the data equivalents of, of, of like hammers and screwdrivers, which is in data terms, that's Excel or manually typing SQL, right? Uh, they have gone, f- in some cases, gone from that level to, to the power tools, you know, the... the you know, data warehouse. The data warehouses and Power BI, which is still a craftsman's tool but they're power but, tool. But they're powered but, by so machines. I'm, I'm using the electrical screwdriver. Exactly. But they're still more or less steered by humans. And the, the mature data warehouses, they, have, they start to touch on these, uh, on these pipelines where you see the, the, you know, the uh, ETL flows running each day and, and so forth. Uh, but they are in general, when you work with them, you are in general not able to go back and correct things if they go wrong because you don't have the flows set up so that you can easily throw out a new flow or if you have a bug somewhere, you can't just delete and build everything from the beginning. They're still made to run on the daily basis uh, and so forth. And that's why you have to do all of this modeling up front in a data warehouse with your star schemas and your satellites and your data vaults. And you have to think very carefully how you do to handle the slow changing dimensions and so forth. All of the thinking is unnecessary in a data lake environment because you have the raw data. And if you do something wrong, you create a new pipeline and, and process it in a different way. And just to wrap this up then, do we need both or do you think carefully like why do we need warehouses forget about that it's a different way of doing it just learn it or, or do or is these different use cases in the end where the where the data vault schema or the star schema has a place or is or you essentially say rethink relearn and we can get to the same result in a different way where the, do you stand here the long term and in data mature companies the data warehouses have one purpose left and that is to uh, for exploratory analytics to have a sort of a prepared data workbench where you can turn things around. So you usually have hyperdimensional cubes that you sort of shift. So around. a lot of data. So you have you created a, a, a super data set to explore, something like that. Yeah. But from an operational point of view, no. No, not for not. You feed humans with the data warehouse, but you don't feed machinery anymore through the data warehouse. And and reporting is. If you are used to a data lake, data platform, a data processing environment, um, or the sort of monostyle data, data factory environment, and used to data ops, doing all of the reporting and so forth, that usually in, in a bank lives in the data warehouse. That's easier to do in 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 a uh, in a data ops data factory setting. And uh, in fact, that's what that the was reports. one. The reports, yeah, that was one of the major. So this is interesting. So you say data warehousing is not for reports. <laughs> I like it. I mean, I mean, if you look at if you look at companies that have had the data warehouse, yes, their reporting is going to be in that data warehouse yeah, yeah. For, for, for a very long purposes. time for, for legacy purposes. And and it, maybe it's never a good idea to shift. But uh, when uh, when I joined Spotify, the the user uh, the use technical username of, of that we used to access Hadoop was reporting because that was the first <laughs> uh, purpose of the of the Hadoop cluster. 
faster in a sense. And reporting never left Hadoop because that's it's so much better to do it there. And we, we so this is really interesting because we get the the consultants, the management consultants, they're trying to build this storyline, and you are telling me, well, think about it. Reporting can be done beautifully this way. Absolutely, and and we that was actually a power in terms of. Um, of business value as well, because I was in, I was doing royalty and reporting for a while, and uh, the manager said, uh, "You know, we're the sewer of the company. Everything that's <laughs> ugly downstream, it floats and it ends up here." Because we were one of the few teams that cared a lot about data quality. So royalty we, reporting it, is the is this <laughs> <laughs> because if you if you deal with the finance stuff, you you care about the quality, whereas for recommendations, well, ah. not, doesn't matter like, all that much. Um, so. <laughs> Anyway, so so we had to do lots of of like repairs of, of, of broken data, and that turns out to be a lot easier if you have a powerful programming environment. Um, and at some point, there was a renegotiation with the contracts and so forth. And and the much of the royalty calculations and reporting is contracts with with record labels translated to code, right? Uh, and after these renegotiations, you know, you know, they would come back and, and we would look at this and say, well, you actually, in order to, you know, ship the, the right royalties to, to the, these artists, you have to look uh, two weeks ahead in time or, or something, but you're supposed to do that within three days. Like, uh, what are you giving us? Uh, and some, most of the cases were simple, but some of the cases were really difficult to like implement in code. And they looked nice on legalese, but, but in code, difficult because of the data dependencies. And we used to swear about these things, right? And, you know, can't they have a software engineer on that negotiation table? But <laughs> it actually, then, 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 then we realized, well, wait a minute, this is actually a, uh, a very powerful feature. Because we, we saw some blog posts of, of, I think it was Airbnb's reporting pipeline, and we realized we, we, you know, we were five years ahead of them in terms of being able to express things with reporting. And being able to express complex like business relations was a feature that enabled us to get the, the contract signed. And that's, that's what Spotify lives and dies with. Right? It's a very interesting, like completely different angle on the traditional BI versus big data story. And, very and interesting. Also, if, if you look at reporting, which is reporting what has happened, if you take the same code and, and you tweak it a bit, it turns out that you can also do, do like forecasting and, and, and financial prognosis. And in, if you have a powerful data factory, instead of giving the, the reports at the end of the month and a few days at, or a few days after the end of the month for, for various reasons, you can actually give the updated reports, you know, on a daily basis so that you know how, how your operate, how your, uh, financials are, are flowing and so forth. Uh, and this was very easy for us. We, we thought it would be difficult when, when we got the demand, but, but this, these things turned out to be released because, because the factory was in place. And this, this has much more business impact than, than any AI or, or, or machine learning, at least at the maturity level what we are today. So, 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 so you think this is, this is going straight down to, to real hardcore operational waste on a daily basis in 90% of our Swedish businesses. Exactly, exactly. And this, you know, getting the data democratized so that people can use it, getting it, it structuring and, and building the factories so that you can do things, that, that gives uh, 
that's where the bulk of the, of the value in data processing is. It enables AI and machine learning and so forth, but you have to get grip on these things before you actually but, can but, get But to, to conclude, if you get really good at the data factor idea, this is, you know, we talk, I talk about to become there, data and AI ready. So getting the data part right, the data processing part right, it's immediate value now, and it sets you up for AI. Yes, exactly. It's a prerequisite. It's a prerequisite, but it's actually, you can actually cream, you can squeeze value now. Yes. Even with the AI train also moving in its pace. Yes. And uh, maybe you've seen, there's uh, there's this um, triangle with the, What's going to help me here, Anders? The Monica Rogatis... Um, the Vente diagram or what? No, the uh, fundamental needs of, of AI. What's it called? The, uh, like the, the basic needs of AI or something like that. It, it's a reference to a psychological uh, model where you say that uh, for you as humans to thrive, first we must have food to eat and shelter and, you know, the the basic things for AI to thrive, it needs exactly. And, and, you know, after you have food and after you have mm-hmm. longevity and can protect your children and so forth, then you can realize yourself and, mm-hmm. and pa- paint art on the, on the caves uh, yeah. and so forth. Right? Almost sounds so, like Maslow. So what's the Maslow of AI? Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> so the time is flying away here and oh. I hope that we can cover a few more topics yep, in a very perhaps ahead. quick way. So at least, <laughs> you know, have some of your, ideas as well covered. And I, I know one of the things that I like as well that you mentioned is the hidden technical depth uh, and the paper that Google wrote in 2015 or 16, 15, right? Yeah, something along that time frame. Yeah, it's a great paper. I, it I was, is, actually. I, I was about to segue into that, actually. Oh, okay. Because that illustrates, uh, if, you, if you do like machine learning applications, it illustrates how little effort that's actually spent on the core machine learning data yeah. science things and how much effort is spending is spent on the systems around to, yeah. to manage the data, to clean the data, to do the, the, the inf- work with the infrastructure, to do the experiments and the logging uh, uh, and so forth, right? It's a f- famous picture, I think, in that paper. Uh, I think it's like a small, small, like That's square. the one you've been, you've been sharing that picture yeah. a couple of times, I think. And there are so many redrawings of that picture. I've redrawn it myself uh, yeah. uh, because of copyright reasons. Right? Yeah. And in every redrawing that I see, the little thing in the middle, it, no, it's much bigger on the redrawings <laughs> <laughs> because it's usually done by people that work with that yeah, little part and, and they want, yeah. want it to be bigger. So in short, th- there is a lot of like a plumbing code, supporting systems that you need to have in place to actually use AI machine learning in production and yes. people rarely underestimate that or how would you describe it? Uh, ab- absolutely. And they start off in the, uh, in the r- wrong order, right? They start mm. with that little box in, in the middle. They hire a data science team, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then what, uh, what mm. happens? Uh, and that's, uh, if you're much, you're much better success if you do it in, in the other order, because you can, most of da- most data-driven products look like that, but they are missing the little machine learning box in the middle. Yeah. And those are really valuable products, like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, internal features for A/B testing or for, for web analytics or, mm. or whatever, right? Mm. So you can you're much better off if you start building up the other boxes mm. and building up your capabilities, and uh, you can succeed with the uh, with machine learning products 
uh, at first uh, with 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 perhaps little effort and little spikes, uh, where you just focus on the middle thing. Mm. But once you uh, once you get to a certain quality level, right? You, you, for example, if you do fraud detection, once mm. you can get to seventy, eighty, or something. But if you want to go beyond mm. that, you need the ability to experiment. And and tweak a bit and measure and forward test whether things yeah. are actually working. And then you need a whole infrastructure around. There's this concept called a prototype graveyard that I think we mentioned before a bit. Yeah, I was and just gonna you picked it up now. So continue on this one. I was I had it on my tongue. <laughs> and uh, you know, a lot of companies that are not tech giants, they want to use AI and they say they use AI and they say they have AI in production, but in reality, very few actually has. But they do try. And I think a lot of companies try to build prototypes saying, you know, I'm I'm using AI or machine learning for this and that. But very often it doesn't leave the stage of being a prototype to becoming something in production. And uh, for one, do, would you agree with that? that there Absolutely. Is a, yeah. I mean, the, I think Gartner concluded that, you know, yeah. 80% of all machine learning prototypes end up never going yeah, to production. It has to have something with this map to do that we think we do AI because we do the little small box in the middle, but we haven't really figured out the life cycle or the landscape around it to put it in production. Yeah, and, and we can we can sort of sneer about it, but it's, uh, it's also a way of employer branding, right? It, it's a way to say that this is where we want to go and we're showing it off with a demo. Uh, yeah. so, so it has some tangible value, but not necessarily direct business value. So if you were to advise a company that want really to, to start becoming more data and AI driven and not ending up in the prototype graveyard, you know, what, what should they try to do? So, um, as I said, like being, getting a grip on working with data is a prerequisite for, for, for getting machine learning and AI out there, at least in a sustainable manner. I've sort of discovered that after talking with data, with companies that are, that are less data mature and, and, uh, you know, to do my best to help them along the path that a prerequisite for becoming data mature is to become, um, in a sense, become agile, right. And being mm. able to, uh, come up with an idea, test it out, figure out uh, whether it worked or not, and based on that, like uh, learning, come up with another idea and do that cycle fast. Mm. Right? Uh, uh, and uh, a, a colleague of mine called it, calls it build measure the build measure learn loop, and mm. being able to do that, whether whether it has anything to do with data or not. Yeah, right. It, maybe it's maybe it's very simple uh, measurement. The ability to do that fast is a usually a prerequisite to to going into uh, to data factors and so forth. So you're thinking you're talking even here about the cultural mindset. Yes. That yes. ultimately, if we are not even in the cultural mindset of elaborating, we have a waterfall culture. Or we have sort of. That then is really really hard to even get started. And and if you work in in time cycles of of uh, like years or quarters, and uh, so so I think I think that the uh, the most successful companies nowadays they have figured out how to how to get these cycles really fast, uh, and and that has for example made the OKRs uh, and and somewhat outdated way to to coordinate because that assumes cycles of, of quarters. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that that's I believe that's one of the reasons why Spotify left that and moved to these dib things because of if you so the dib is the the constant prioritized transparent exactly. list versus an OKR exactly it's going from the quarterly sort of sprints of OKRs to to a const- continuously Const- flowing continuous uh, continuously dip. changing what does dib stand for uh, uh, data insight belief bet so these lists were were like bets things that we said that we this is the thing we should do. And I believe also Spotify said, or I think it was Don Lake that said at one point um, that Spotify, and I'm sorry for paraphrasing now, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think he said Spotify is going to be the company that fails the fastest. Absolutely. And and, and uh, that mindset together with the enablement of, of enabling people to use data and democratization has created some fantastic things. One of my... Proudest moments was when I watched the uh, presentation of, of how they made Discover Weekly, uh, because th- this was like this. This now eighteen months after we did this this data transformation and sort of democratized data within the company, uh, and they said, "Oh yes, we did this and this and this, and we did this in a hack week. Right? It took mm-hmm. a week to get the the basic things in place, and." We could do it so quickly because all of the things were already in place. We could use these data sets from that recommendation and we could use these data sets and we had these pipelines that were building playlists so we could hook onto these pipelines and create a, a playlist uh, and and export it into the playlist service. And all of this, this was, none of this came from the top, right? None of this was a strategic decision that we're going to make this uh, this product in six months. It was all created by enable bottom-up innovation and enable innovation throughout the company. And I was like, wait, wait, that's the enablement that we did 18 months before. And uh, Donny Lek was interviewed at some point and he said, yeah, I heard about it. It seemed like a bad idea. So if I had been in charge, I would have, you know, shut it down. But that's not how Spotify works. So when they asked for more people to reach us, said no. And then the month passed and they, they launched it anyway. And, you know, a year later, they had 40 million users. So apparently I was wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> Super cool story. So, uh, and But is, this is about enablement and... and, and I think this is super cool also because the, the paradigm what Spotify is doing, what Epidemic Sound is doing, is I think it's a, it's the fundamental understanding of that on a lower level, there's a lot of in situation mode data products. So we are containerizing, we are, we are making them l- more modularized. We're we, we having a, a mesh of data products. And then we hook this up and we, we get this Lego thinking going. And I think this is very, very different ultimately to the monolithic approach or the data warehouse approach, or which I think is, is sometimes is very hard to grasp yeah. if you haven't lived it. Yeah. And uh, coming back to how do you become data mature, many of the companies that I meet, I meet them and I say, well, uh, uh, sort of Skling speciality is to execute things in production. Mm. And, and uh, to truly get values. So yeah, to to, and, and to, to iterate fast, you know, uh, mm. f- from the moment that you say, we have this idea, okay, okay we can, s- can we set up a data flow? Yes, then we can get it out in- into production very quickly uh, and, and iterate there. But the, um, the challenge with many of the companies that I meet, that they are not ripe for, uh, I meet them too early in, in, mm. in the face. So, so they are not ripe to throw things out into, into product, their mm. ideas into production. They are, uh, struggling with enabling 
bottom-up invasion. They, they, I meet sea level, and they, they think that if they sit a couple of sea people in the room, they can come up with with, with great things. No, it's down there yeah. that the great ideas are. Innovation hub happen in the bottom exactly so and, and and getting but let me let you know we have a few minutes left and <laughs> we have spoken about you know companies and how we can make that but if we lift the view a bit and, and try to think you know about society sweden europe a bit and we can also think about bottom up as we said before and top down approaches to just accelerate ai mm-hmm. and day and, and uh, ai usage so if we were to to have that thinking just generalized a bit more and let's say that we want to become less dependent on on tech giants cloud providers what would you uh, advise like swedish or european politicians to say this is actually how we could start to have a swedish european data infrastructure that starts to catch up perhaps not you know come to the same level but at least start to catch up I think I would urge them to emphasize, to to accept that innovation in this area happens in small uh, or in a small clique of highly technical companies, mm-hmm. right? If 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 we look at the the companies that understand data, AI, uh, cloud scale infrastructure, and so forth, there are a very few of them and and there's no flow of that competence from from the uh, tech stars to to outside they just flow between each other and to the and to the startups mm-hmm. so, uh, so i think accepting that that's where the innovation will, will happen. happen yeah mm-hmm. not not with the old giants not in academia but but in that click of, of so let me give four examples and, and let me and, and you can choose you know what you think is the best approach there are these things called like gaia x and others that are basically like a top down european approach to build a european infrastructure in different ways and they try to coordinate that top down in some way there are other approaches you can choose to invest in academia to have better education in Uh, these type of examples, um, you can choose to invest more in the bigger size SMEs or yeah, enterprise companies to say, you really need to ta- start the transformation into becoming a more data-driven and AI-driven company. Or you can choose to also invest in like startups and having a scene where startups can get funding and get started easily in, in some way. What do you think have the biggest potential? It's a hard question, I know, but... Yeah, I... Uh I mean, the uh, in a way, the natural answer is startups, but I don't believe that answer either, uh, because the, um, the there there is a there is a company, great company in Boston, who also are sort of focused on these data ops and data factories. They are ahead of Skling in the journey. They're called Data Kitchen, and mm-hmm. the 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 CEO Chris Berg is a very uh, eloquent data ops prophet, mm-hmm. uh, and he they. This company is a, a bootstrap company. They never took capital, if I understand correctly. And he says that if you take capital and you sell a story, mm. right, and you sell that that story is going to grow, mm. if you don't take capital, you bootstrap, then you need to sell value. To begin with, so to speak. Yes. Mm. And 
there is a difference, there's a significant difference between story and value. Uh, and a few stories transform into value. But your focus for the, for the you know, first rounds of funding has to be the story. Mm. And I don't think that we need more stories. I, I think there are way too many stories about uh, different ways that AI or blockchain or quantum computing, whatever it is, is going to be fantastic. I think oh, we touched need. so many interesting topics. Can we go for an hour? Because <laughs> we, we touched now... Uh, Robert Luciani was into this as well. Like, do do you know? Do you make a? Uh, do you go for a? Do, is your business model for venture cap or is your business model for value hardcore? Yeah, and then then we talk about. Oh my God! There's so many. We just got started. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think that we need. And data kitchen a, and the whole grandfather of data ops that I wanted to yeah. talk to you about. And we need, you know, we, we, we nestled in the data ops story throughout the whole conversation, but we didn't have a proper data ops conversation yet. Uh, can we go a little bit more? That's, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, if we try to wrap it up, uh, and let me see if I understand you correctly, Elosh. And, and uh, it's, it's in some I way. I don't want to wrap it up. <laughs> I don't want to wrap it up. <laughs> in some way, it's about moving to value quickly. Would you agree with that? Both in terms of startups not having stories but having values. Also for companies that want to start to use data, they have to quickly turn it into some kind of value. And then you need Skling and other companies to help them bootstrap at that, at that journey, right? Or, or how would you yes, summarize? Yes, but that, that? doesn't... Uh, that doesn't necessarily solve the cloud and infrastructure, uh, the, the, the yeah. lack of a European cloud vendor problem, right? Yeah. Because that's then you have also have to sell a, a story in a way that mm. this this is going to fly. So more long term problems are not solved. I, by I, I mean, um, I'm I'm running a bootstrap startup because I believe so much in in generating value, mm. uh, and I think that can fly. Um, and I don't. I don't want the life of a uh, story selling startup. Mm. Uh, that's not how, how I work. But I, I, I need to inject what we talked about with Robert Luciani because there is an, There is he. We 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 were joking about it. You know how to spend money on startups, and and the venture cap story we all understand, and we don't want to s- sell your company away. But we had exactly that story. How do we support and invest heavily? in the startups without ex- expecting them to give away their value. So we joked about it, but I, I'm dead serious. How can we do Arbetsförmedlingen for startups? Like if we are throwing out money to support people to get a job and it's for free, uh, how can we create an infrastructure to support the bootstrapping type strategies yeah. without injecting them with money and expect the story? I, I think you're onto something here. So that reminds me of... of this reminds me of, of I was at uh, what's it called Svenska Handelskammaren, the trade trade council trade council, yeah. And at some point, and I asked them. So, if I as a small startup, if, uh, if I am sued by a patent troll, like can, mm. can I can I get help? No, no, we have no help for you, right? And this is this exactly is a this. kind of this is exactly a kind this. of insurance. That actually the 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 state or or the, or the government or, or EU or some 
Uh, we can help the bootstrapping can, strategy. Right, yeah, and and provide us with with a safety net to all of, yes. of the weird things that to can dare. go wrong, like IT security uh, and economic weird things and and pattern trolls and so forth. Mm. Uh, and that would be a very reasonable way to to sort of boost startups. That's more much more valuable, much more valuable than the venture cap approach exactly. or throwing money into stories. Yes, I I fully agree on this. Uh, and and also uh, you you could uh, do various things with, with open source for dem- for example demanding that that uh, academia funding goes to open source things and, and so forth. I'm not sure what the right model here is, but I I think that you know trying out new approaches like that would, would lead us further than just throwing money things. Awesome. Uh, awesome. I wish we had more time, um, but uh, let's uh, try to close it up a bit. And um, if we Start by asking a bit. What's next in your life? Oh, next, next is to definitely to iterate on on sort of the the Skling model, and uh, until we have figured out how to make that work uh, in mm. a in a sustainable manner, and get, you know, get the uh, f- s- look at the first few clients and see that what is the model that actually make it work, and get that up to a sustainable uh, level. Sounds good. Yes. And perhaps make it work for, for not only companies, but Sweden and Europe. Uh, Absolutely. Well. And and what drives me here is is not, you know, uh, ent- uh, success as an entrepreneur, but I want to give these uh, powers mm. to all of the good companies that, that are out there. If you if you look at Scandinavian companies, like, you know, H&M, IKEA, Volvo, and so forth, they really align with my values mm. in, in very... That just lack your knowledge in data. Yeah, but I, and, and this goes back exactly. to the data AI divide we've talked about. That yeah. sort of, you know, the best way to get a good, inclusive, diversified society uh, is to make sure everybody's in on the ride. So we are, we are getting a new type of poverty. We will have a new type of society if we're not careful now, driven by the AI divide. So I think how to disrupt from within companies or support these companies rather than de- they being disrupted from a exactly. tech giant that that would be much much healthier for our whole economic s- system exactly and that that's my mission and mine that, too that, that's, that's uh, my mission Green's too mission. Yes. that sounds awesome Lars, is there anyone that you would recommend to be on this show that mm. you think could be interesting for you to listen on Oh, that's a good question. I haven't prepared an answer uh, for that one. <laughs> Sorry, I have to get back to you on that one. Oh. Uh, oh. Ah, no, 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 not that easy, not that easy. No, Come I'm on, getting off the hook here. T- t- you're not getting off the hook. Sorry. Uh, so this uh, pull something out of your your um, whatever. In that case, I would say uh, Fredrik Olsson, researcher mm-hmm. at uh, at Rice. Yes, he's fine. one of the top natural language processing researchers in Sweden. Oh, yeah. Cool and uh, amazing uh, character. Ask him about his relation to Jonas Gadell. To who? Jonas Gadell. Oh, really? No, no, oh, no. That would be that's a cliffhanger. Yeah, now we have to get that's a cliffhanger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, just a little anecdote. <laughs> awesome. So nice to see you again, uh, Lars. Um, um, it's been far too no. long since the last. W- time. One last question. I, I heard about this um, 
music rivalry at Spotify. <laughs> Dance bands versus Iron Maiden. Uh, or, or is that true? Not Iron Maiden, but yes, that, that goes back to, <laughs> <laughs> to the time when, when Anders and I was sitting more or less next to each other. Yeah. Uh, were and you cranking up the volumes? Uh, well, uh, on Fridays, there was this tradition to have, you know, casual Friday, which means <laughs> that we had this shared playlist going on all oh. the time. And, and that was usually bearable mainstream stuff. But every once in a while, Anders would put some dance band mm. stuff, you know, Lasse Stefans or whatever yes. it was. And what would you, what would I, you counter I, with? I cannot work to that kind <laughs> of music, right? So, so I had to counter with something that, that prevents Anders from, from working. So that, that would typically be, be like some industrial electronic. Like industrial front electronic. Frontline assembly or front 242 or something. <laughs> what a great <laughs> And then times. we had a terror balance. Fun times. <laughs> cool. Cool. Awesome to have you here, Lars. Um, uh, thank you again. And uh, yeah, I wish you a happy evening and a continued career. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you very much.